Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Last week we began this chapter with an overview, the first 52 verses of the chapter, and and we took the time to do that in order to try to establish a foundation of how to approach these uh, parables, which represent a, a significant change in the in the teaching approach of Jesus uh, vis-a-vis the nation of Israel, they are, uh, they are noticeably different in how he, how he speaks to the nation, how he conducts himself vis-a-vis the nation. And so we wanted to get an overview of that, and we wanted to do that so that we could, as we begin to look at the parables individually, we could have a, a foundation to properly interpret them. And this morning, we now arrive at the first of the eight parables that he records for us here. And I want to look at this one with you this morning. And this is what is commonly known as the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils. So it's Matthew 13, and it begins in verse 3. And the parable itself runs through verse 9. And then Jesus provides an interpretation of this parable in verses 18 through 23. So we've got a bunch of, uh, of text before us this morning that we're going to work our way through. And it's uh, significant that we, we begin with this parable. This is, this is an important parable, and it's critical that we get, a, we get off to a good understanding here, a good, solid interpretation of this parable. And the reason it's important is because if we don't get this one right, we are not going to have much hope for the ones that follow. And I can make that kind of a, of a strong statement because Jesus himself makes that kind of a strong statement. In Mark chapter 4, which is a a parallel account of the events of that day, uh, Mark records there in his gospel a statement that Jesus makes. Matthew doesn't record this statement, but Mark does. And uh, by this statement, Jesus declares the reality that this first parable, the parable of the soils, is, is critical. It's foundational. It's essential that we have it properly understood before we proceed into the following parables. Jesus said to them, Mark 4 and verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? Jesus had given the parable, and then later in the house, they came to him and they said, you know, tell us what does this stuff all mean? And he says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? If you don't understand this parable, there is no way you're going to understand all the other parables that follow it. So this one is a very, very important parable. So as we approach it, I think we need to make some observations together and kind of get a lay of the land here. And uh, the first observation that I want want to make with you is uh, regards actually this parable and the last one in the series. So the first one here, the parable of the soils, and then over in verses, uh, really verse 52, we have uh, what I'm calling the parable of the householder, and uh, that's the the final, the eighth parable of the series. And the the thing that I want you to notice is that in this first one here, the parable of the soils, and this second, uh, this eighth one rather, the uh, parable of the householder, I want you to notice that Jesus does not make any comparisons to the kingdom of heaven. And that is a very, very uh, important insight. Notice in uh, verse 24, 
of Matthew 13, the second parable that Matthew records Jesus telling, he says the, the kingdom, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Do you see that? And then when you look at the remaining parables, verse 31, the parable of the mustard seed, he says the kingdom of heaven is like. And he will repeat that phrase in all of the remaining parables except for the last one. He will continue to say the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. But he doesn't do it in the first one and he doesn't do it in the last one. And that's important. And what we can conclude from that reality is that the first parable and the last parable serve a different purpose than the ones that fall in between. There's a different purpose for the first one, the parable of the soils, and there's a different purpose for the closing parable, the parable of the householders. And they act like bookends to everything that is in between. So there's an opening parable, a closing parable, and a whole series of parables that lie between. And the, and the series that lie between are comparative parables. They all contain the expression, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, except this first one and this last one. So what can we conclude about the purpose of the first parable? The one that Jesus says, if you don't get this one right, how in the world are you going to understand all the other ones? So this is the gate into the parables. And it's a different kind of parable. And the answer is that the purpose of this first parable that Jesus speaks publicly but interprets privately to his 12 disciples, and, and according to Mark chapter 4 and verse 10, some other disciples were with them, so it's the 12 plus, a, plus an, a, another smaller group. So to these followers of Christ, Jesus tells this first parable why. And the answer to the why is, is that this parable is given to provide a, a spiritual diagnosis of the, of the nation of Israel. This is a diagnostic parable. The purpose of this parable is to prepare the disciples for what is about to happen. And what is about to happen is the collapse of the messianic ministry. The popularity of Jesus is about to collapse publicly. And this collapse will be very uh, disturbing and and very uh, faith-shattering, faith rattling of the followers of Christ, his, his close followers. And so Jesus wants to prepare them. And he's going to prepare them by way of this parable. It won't be much longer chronologically until Jesus will feed the 5,000. And at the end of, of, of that miracle, the Apostle John records for us a very, very interesting statement in John chapter 6 And verse 66, where John says, as a result of this, that is the the teaching that follows the feeding of the 5,000, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus' popularity, remember, has been going this way in Galilee because of all the miracles he's been doing. He has been healing anyone who will come. 
Whether they have faith in him or not, it doesn't matter. Everybody come and everybody who can get close to him, he will heal. In fact, to such an extent that he has effectively banished disease and illness in Galilee for for a period of almost a year. And it would appear by the crowds, for one looking on, that this messianic enterprise is going somewhere. He's popular. But it's not going to last. It's not going to last. And so Jesus here is providing for the disciples a diagnosis of this condition in preparation for the collapse that is going to come. So as we take a look at the parable together and its explanation that Jesus gives, what we're going to see is four different reactions to Jesus' messianic ministry among the people of Israel so that we can understand why the nation rejected their king. What happened? How did it go from so evidently good to so bad? To the place where they will actually crucify their own Messiah. What happens? The parable explains it. And so as we take a look at the parable, let's just begin there in in verse 3. And understand some things. First, the parables that that Jesus tells here are are drawn from from common activities of life. Remember, we talked about this last time. They are are common stories from activities of life that represent or, or illustrate a deeper spiritual truth. And these early ones are drawn from the realm of agriculture. They are agricultural parables. Now, it's important to understand some things about, about agriculture in Israel as we, before we really dive into this thing. And the first thing we need to, to understand is, is that the region uh, of Israel that is north and northwest of the Sea of Galilee is an incredibly fertile region. It, is, it, is, uh, it was the breadbasket of the nation, and it remains that way today. It is a very, very fertile area. And, and this is the area where Jesus uh, lived and ministered and conducted uh, um, many of his miracles. And so the people in this area know about agriculture. And in fact, this area is, is so productive, was then and is now, that uh, the Jewish historian Josephus writes about it, and, and he writes about it in, his, in his, his book, The Wars of the Jews, and it's really fascinating. He sort of interrupts his, his narrative about the, uh, the war between Rome and Israel, and, and he begins to, to speak about the area here of, of what's called the Plain of Gennesaret. It's, it's kind of north and west, uh, bordering on the Sea of Galilee. So Capernaum would be to the east of it. And Josephus writes this and, and about this area. He calls it, quote, the ambition of nature. The ambition of nature, where it, that is nature, forces those plants that are naturally enemies to one another to agree together. It is a happy contention of the seasons as if every one of them laid claim to this country. And what Josephus is basically saying is, no matter what you plant in this area, it grows. It grows. Things that ordinarily will not grow side by side will grow here. The ground is so fertile here, so productive here, that, that it, all you have to do is throw the seed in the ground and it sprouts. And it sprouts. And that's true. That's true of this area. It was true then, it's true now. 
Now, agriculturally, this, this, uh, this entire region of the world is dependent upon rainfall. And, and we should be able to relate to that because we're dependent upon rainfall here. In fact, our climate here is somewhat similar. And so the farming that was done in those days was a, was a seasonal farming, and it, and it followed the pattern of rain for this area. You've got to have water even in the most fertile of grounds. And there are two, essentially two rainy seasons. There are what the scriptures call the early rains and the latter rains. And the early rains are the winter rains. The latter rains are the spring rains. And what would happen is when the the early rains came, when the winter rains came, they would soften the ground. They would soften the ground and they would prepare it. These rains came in October, November. Can you relate? Okay, and then rain came and softens the ground. And what would happen is at that time, the farmers would then plow their fields and they would plant their grain crops. They'd plant their grain crops. Now, the way they plowed is important for us to understand because it's, it's assumed an understanding of this in the parable. So here it is, the way they would plant. They would have a wooden plow. And the wooden plow was shaped like a capital T. But it would be tipped on its side. And, the, and uh, what would normally be the vertical part of the T, which is now horizontal because it's tipped, would be fastened to a yoke and would be pulled by, by an animal, an oxen or a pair of oxen or donkeys or whatever. The, the vertical now part of the T, on the bottom part, it would be sharpened to a point and there would be either a bronze or an iron tip placed on this point. And then the other part that came up, they put a handle. And so what would happen is the, is the farmer would lean on the handle and drive the point into the ground. And then the animals would pull this point through the ground, this, this, uh, this spike. They would pull it through the ground, through the ground that's been softened by the, by the rain, and it would, it would tear the ground open into a, into a small furrow about three to four inches deep. So they didn't, they didn't turn the soil over the way modern farming does. They just they tore through it in these, these um, narrow trenches or ditches. Then the farmer would scatter the seed upon the field. He'd have an open basket at his side, so he's leaning on the plow, and he's, he's got a basket, and as it's being pulled through the field, he's scattering the seed with his hand onto the ground that has been torn open. There'd be a sack on the back of the animal, and they would replenish the open basket from the sack that's on the animal. So that's the process of plowing and sowing. Now, because there were villages all around this part of of the area of Israel, a very very populous area as well, there would be paths that would crisscross through the farmer's fields in order for people to get to point A to point B, right? And you know all about that. All you have to do is visit a, a school campus and, uh, and take a look at uh, the most natural pathways, and they don't always follow the concrete sidewalks, right? People figure out what's the best way to get from A to B, and they do it. And after a period of time, you get a path, a, a hard pack of the ground. And so the ground would have these hard-packed areas that would cut through the fields, if the seed that is being scattered lands on this hard-packed area, of course, it doesn't penetrate the ground, and the birds come and they eat what's left, or the people tramp it into the ground. Luke talks about that in Luke 8 and verse 5 in his account of the same parable. There is one other 
uh, obstacle to, to farming here that, that needs to be understood before we delve into the parable here. And that is that there are tremendous limestone ridges that, that populate that part of the world. And, the, and these limestone ridges uh, frequently lie below the level of the soil but not deeply below the level of the soil. If they're just a little way below, and they're just uh, often just out of reach of the tip of this plow, this spike that goes into the ground. It goes in through four inches, but the limestone is below that. And so the farmer plowing the field has no way to know whether there's limestone underneath the soil or not because the plow doesn't, uh, doesn't reach it. And so what happens is that the seed that is spread on the ground... It, it uh, begins to germinate, and the, and the roots start to go down, but they, they run into the limestone plate under the soil, and therefore all the growth energy of the plant goes into the foliage, and it, and it begins to spring up very quickly. But it doesn't last, because the sun in that part of the world is exceedingly hot. I can tell you that from firsthand experience. It is exceedingly hot. Okay, like burn the top off your head hot. And so when the sun hits the soil that was formerly soft and, and, um, and ready for the seed because of the rains, if the soil is not deep enough to hold the moisture, it dries out quickly. And when it dries out, it kills whatever has been planted in that shallow soil. One other thing to, to know is, is the whole issue of, of um, weeds. There are weeds uh, in every part of the world, right? There are weeds in every part of the world. Someone once told me that a weed is a plant in the wrong place. And that's the definition of a weed. It's a plant in a place where you don't want it. Well, there are weeds in the ground there, and the roots of the weeds, just like we understand them, lie in the soil, dormant, until the rains come and they begin to grow. And the phenomena since the fall of Adam is that weeds grow faster than cultivated plants. We don't know why that is. It just is. And uh, so certainly they experienced in certain places an infestation of thorns or weed seeds that would grow up and would choke out a particular part of the field. It just wasn't a a productive part of the farmland. But the the part where the soil wasn't shallow and it wasn't infested in weeds was a part of the soil that produced incredible crop yields. And still can. Very, very fertile ground. And so it's, um, this, this part of the world understands what it means to have massive crop yields. Now the parable. Verse 1. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and he sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, listen here. The sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no roots, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, listen. Thanks for coming. 
Thanks for coming. And so he ends his, his sermon, his message. He tells them what they already know. There's no mystery to this story, to the, to the, to the parable as he tells it. This is common knowledge to the residents of this area. This is how farming is done. This is the results of farming. And so it's no wonder, verse 10, that the disciples come to him later and they say, and they say why do you speak to them in parables? What does it mean? And I'm sure glad that Jesus provides an explanation, you know? Because it's not hard to understand the story. But what does it mean? And we have an explanation. And Jesus gives us the explanation in verse 18. And there the explanation includes uh, four reactions, four different reactions of the soil. And so Jesus explains this parable to us, and, and it's in the explanation that we're going to, we're going to see these, this marvelous truth. Now, as we begin, we need to obviously notice a few things. And so take your eyes to verse 19. And the seed, the seed represents something here in this parable. And what it represents is the, is the word of the kingdom, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So the, the word of the kingdom represents the seed, or the seed rather represents the word of the kingdom. So what is the word of the kingdom? Well, in, in, in most simple forms, it's, it's the message about the kingdom that Jesus has been proclaiming. Matthew chapter 4, just to be reminded of this, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the word of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, uh, all the way to, to chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's, a, that's the word of the kingdom as Jesus has been elaborating it to the nation. And they've all heard it. They've, they've, they've heard the message. But how they respond to it will be different. It's like the soils. They've all received the seed. But what happens to the seed in the soil depends upon the soil. In every case, the, the message has been heard, that is, with the ear. But what happens to it after they've heard it... What, the response that it elicits is different. The various soils are different. And, and the soil here represents the, the human heart. Again, verse 19. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. Notice it. In his heart. In his heart. Now, contextually, let your eyes go back to verse 15. The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. So we're talking about the, the human heart here, that, re, that here the, the, that the Word of God has been, ex, it's been exposed to the Word of God, to the Word of the kingdom. And what happens to it is what's being addressed. 
The other thing to notice is that, that, that there's an initial response from two groups that appears optimistic, but later turns out to be a massive disappointment. A massive disappointment. Two groups respond favorably. Two, two soils respond favorably to the seed. But it ultimately produces nothing. The same thing's true here. Two, two hearts respond favorably, at least initially, to the word of the kingdom. But ultimately, they fail to bring it to harvest. They ultimately fail to produce a, a crop and they die out. So let's take a look at the soils and unpack it together. The first soil, the first type of person, verse 19, is what we call the unresponsive hearer. The unresponsive hearer. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The first group of hearers in the nation of Israel that does, do not respond to the message of the kingdom. And the reason they don't respond is because their hearts are hard. They're hard-hearted. And the hardness of their heart prevents them from comprehending, from understanding the message that their ears have heard. This condition is, is brought on by their persistent refusal to, to walk in the truth. And it makes them fair game for Satan who, who influences them to thrust the truth away from them. If we were to use a different spiritual metaphor, we could, we could say that they are blind, right? They are blind. Paul understood this reality. He says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a, there is a hardness to the heart that thrusts the truth away, and Satan comes and then snatches it such that they cannot understand it. It brings about no fruit. Who's he talking about? Who is he talking about? I think the answer is absolutely obvious in this context. He is talking about those people who have just attributed the mighty works of the Spirit of God through the ministry of Messiah to who? To the evil one. To the evil one. He is talking about the leadership of the nation of Israel. And he's saying that for the, for the, for the nation of Israel and, and its leadership, the seed does not penetrate them. It, it hits the ground, it, hits their, it goes through their ears, it hits their heart, and it lays there, and Satan just sweeps it away. Just sweeps it away. They are unresponsive to his message. In fact, beyond unresponsive, they, they attribute his work to the work of demons. The unresponsive hearer. The second group within the nation is what we call the superficial hearer. The superficial hearer, that's verses 20 and 21. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Different response, different group within the nation. This is the, this is the, the group within the nation of Israel at this time who, who immediately, um, rather than close themselves off to the truth, they jump on the bandwagon. They jump on the bandwagon. They are, they are joining the parade. They are, they are following Messiah. They, they follow him everywhere. Everywhere. And it appears like that, that, they've, that they've embraced the message that he is bringing. These make up the adoring crowds. And they create the impression that this thing is going really well. That the, that the nation is going to embrace him. They're going to receive their king. And, and, and the kingdom he's promises is going to come to them. But it's not reality. It's not reality. It's, it's deep down inside. They're not converted. They're not converted. They're, they're like the shallow soil, right? It's quick and instant growth. And you go, this thing's, look at that plant. This thing's doing well. But it's not going to last. When the going gets tough, right? Look at verse 21. When affliction or persecution arises because of the message of the kingdom, immediately they're gone. They're gone. And they're going to leave everybody else wondering what happened. What happened? Where do the crowds go? This speaks about the, those in the nation who, who were amazed with Jesus. Remember uh, in um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were, what? Amazed at his teaching. Chapter 12. Verse 22, when a, when a demon-possessed man was blind and, and who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw, all the crowds were what? Amazed. They're amazed. They're on the bus. They're on the bus. They're, they're following Jesus. And if you're a disciple of Jesus at this point, you're thinking, man, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. This is going to really turn out well. The problem is it's not real. There's no depth to it. In fact, the reason the crowds are following him, and, and John's gospel gives us a little insight into that. John chapter 6 and, and verse 26, John says, or Jesus says rather the following, and John records it. It's really kind of interesting. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The reason you follow me is because I'm good for a meal. I'm good for a meal. They're hungry for the miracles. It's quick growth. It's spectacular growth. But it's not real growth. And when the persecution begins to to arise, and it does. In fact, John's gospel records that too in John chapter 9 and, and verse 22. Or the parents of, of, the, uh, of the man here who was born blind, when, when, uh, 
when they refused to answer the, the Jewish authorities of whether this is their son, you know, the, whether he was truly born blind or not, says his parents say this because they were afraid of the Jews. Verse 22, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. There was a price to pay to follow him. And the crowds, as long as there's no price to pay, are willing to follow. But as soon as the price begins to be made known, they melt away. They melt away. That's why Jesus warned the nation. Luke chapter 14, verse 28, count the cost. Count the cost of following me. The unresponsive hearer, the superficial hearer, third group within the nation, the preoccupied hearer. The preoccupied hearer. Verse 22, Matthew 13. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's a different group within the nation. They weren't necessarily the first to join. They weren't quick to the bandwagon. But they're following him. They're part of the crowds now. They're part of the, of the popularity. And, and it looks like they're going to be long-lasting disciples. But eventually, the worry about the things of this world, the, the entanglements of riches, pleasure, personal ambition, and so forth, they grow up and they, and they sap the soil of its energy. They smother and they starve the message. And it dies. It dies in their hearts. I don't think we need to look any further than uh, Matthew 19 to get an illustration of this group. Matthew 19 and beginning in verse 16. The rich young ruler. You remember him? The rich young ruler. Verse 16, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? What better question could you think of than that, right? Gee, is this an evangelistic opportunity or what? Right? What do I need to do to attain eternal life? And, and so Jesus speaks to him about the commandments and so forth, right? And he says, hey, I've done all that. The young man said in verse 20, All these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. He melts. The entanglements of the world snuff out the word of the kingdom. The apostle Paul understood this reality in his own ministry. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, having lost one of his disciples named Demas, right, to the love of this world. He warns Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus there. He says, Timothy, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. But the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. It's dangerous. It all looks good, but it's snuffed out. 
the unresponsive hearer, the superficial hearer, the preoccupied hearer. Lastly, the productive hearer. The last group within the nation, the productive hearers. Verse 23, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. There are some that responded to him. There are some. They responded to the truth. It may not have responded in an impulsive way. They may have been slower to join. But they, unlike the rocky-soiled hearers, were, were truly converted. Their lives reflected the reality of the faith they had. Illustration? I think the most obvious illustration is the disciples as we know them, right? The disciples as we know them. They, they are the productive hearers. Those closest to Jesus. And the, Jesus, the inner circle, right? Peter, James, John. The wider circle, the wider circle than that. You know, you get, to, you get to the beginning of the book of Acts and there's 120 meeting together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were 500 at one time who saw the resurrected Christ. It's not a big group. It's a little group. And they don't all produce at the same level. Some are incredibly productive. Some less so. But all are productive. Not all have the ministry of Peter. Not all have the ministry of John, right? Not all have the ministry of Paul. But all have ministry. All produce as a fruit of their conversion. Reminds me of John 15. Right? The certainty of fruit bearing. John 15. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There is fruit bearing. It was true among that small group of adherents. Beloved, this is the nation. This is Jesus' assessment of the nation of Israel. A small group will bear fruit and they will bear it with abundance. The vast majority of the people are either not interested or only superficially interested and it's all going to melt away. It's all going to melt away. And understanding that truth will prepare you to begin to understand the parables that he will speak that communicate the mysteries of the kingdom during the time in which the nation has melted away. Jesus tells this parable for the purpose of diagnosing the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel in the year A.D. 31. That's its purpose. But by way of application, we can draw something from it for our own day, can we not? Maybe we could just even say it this way. If you evaluate your own life this morning, what kind of a hearer are you? What kind of, what are kind of characteristics of soil 
do you manifest? What kind would you like to be? What kind of a soil would you like to be? What kind of a hearer would you like to be? I mean, if you're not productive, you can be. You can be a productive hearer. Jesus provides, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he provides the means by which you can become a productive hearer. It's by believing on him. It's by humbling your heart and and coming to him. Confessing your sin. Acknowledging your separation from God. Believing his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to atone for the sin of your soul. And if you've come to him, but, but maybe there's some thorns growing up in your life. You'll let some weeds accumulate. That same gospel is the, is the divine weed killer. As you go once again back to the cross of Christ, recognize the reality of who he is and, and what he has accomplished there. And in faith in that, the Spirit of God will, will empower you to, to clean the weeds out of your life. Make the soil productive again. Come to Christ. Seek his help, his enablement. He stands with his arms wide open, inviting you to come. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word and we thank you that your spirit uses it in such a way that it is alive. And even a parable told 2,000 years ago with a, with a specific purpose of 2,000 years ago is still a means by which you work even today. Father, I pray for all of us as As we come to the table, O Lord, may your Spirit do his work in us. Enable us to to do some introspection. And Father, may, may you convince us once again of the glories of the gospel. That we might embrace it by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we now have the opportunity to be able to share this simple meal of communion together and to uh, direct our thoughts just for the next few moments. Uh, I'd like us to just look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 26. We're just going to look at one verse this morning to help direct our thoughts as we take this meal together. This is in the passage as Paul is explaining the necessity of the Lord's Supper and recounting what Jesus said on that very night when he established this ordinance for the church. And in verse 26, 
he says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in this verse, we see the simple reality of what's taking place when we take these elements here together. Yes, we are uh, chewing and swallowing. That is something that we are doing. But in that simple reality, we are proclaiming. We are making a proclamation. We are saying something corporately here together by taking communion together. Well, what does it proclaim? Well, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the death of the Son of God upon the cross. The historicity of that event. That the cross was not just folklore that was handed down from generation to generation. The cross was an actual event where a man died upon a cross. You see, when we take that, this meal, we're, we're saying, yes, this actually happened. Yes, this was a real death for real sin. We declare, we proclaim its power. That there upon the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied completely. And that you and I can have sins forgiven. That power is a message worthy of proclamation. Amen? And we proclaim its necessity. By a group of people gathered together, taking this meal all together, we are saying that there is no other way under heaven by which men can be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ, it is only through his death that we can find forgiveness for our souls. Well, we are proclaiming this, but who are we proclaiming it to? I think first and foremost, we're proclaiming it to our own souls. As we take these these elements, we're saying to ourselves, yes, Jesus is the only way. Yes, it is through him that I have salvation. We are reminding ourselves of the gospel as we take this together. We are declaring the truth of Christ's death to the coming generation as well. Our children to say, yes, Jesus is the only way. And of course, we're declaring it to the watching world as well. What would cause a people to gather together and to take these symbolic elements together? It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of Jesus Christ and the cross, of sins forgiven and of life everlasting that would cause us to do that. And so our Our partaking of communion here together has a proclamation element to it. And notice how long we're proclaiming this. It's not once. It's not twice. We're proclaiming this until he comes. We have a proclamation message until the king returns. And so we are declaring what he did in his first coming until he comes a second time. So this morning, as we partake of this together, we are celebrating what Jesus did, and we are proclaiming loud and clear of the Lord's death and what he has done for us.
So before we take that, let's pray together in thanking the Lord. Our Father in heaven, as we prepare to take the elements of communion here, we are reminded from this verse that this simple action is a loud proclamation. And Father, we want this proclamation to be clear. We want it to be unconfused. And so, Father, we ask that you would cause us to search our own souls and see if there be any sin that we are harboring in our hearts, any rebellion that we have left unconfessed, that we may not profane the name of the Lord as we take these, but we might purely and wholly declare the the death of Christ. Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the plan that you as the triune God have devised to send the perfect Son of God to die upon Calvary's cross that we might live forevermore with you. Father, it's a plan that we could not have composed and it's a salvation that we could not have earned. And so here together we we humbly thank you. We thank you for what you did through the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So now as we take this together, I want us to do something we haven't done before. Let's hold up the elements and say together corporately, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, okay? So let's do this now. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake. And to close our service today, let me just finish with this short benediction from the book of Ephesians. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You're dismissed.